Hello and welcome back to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us for the premiere of season four. I don't know if I'm saying premiere right or premiere. What should it's I say? premiere, not premiere. We're not American. <laughs> I just never premier. said it out loud. Who do you loud? think you are? <laughs> um, Bethan's put in the script now. She's put for me to say season four. Wow. And then she's put brackets, chat some bollocks about how far we've come since August 2018. <laughs> So, um, wow, haven't we come so far since 2018, though, seriously? Oh, fuck off, Mark. <laughs> oh, shut up. We have, though, genuinely, yeah, haven't we? Yeah, I couldn't get over the fact that we're coming back in season four. It just blows my mind. It is weird. Yeah, it is crazy, isn't it, how far we've... I'm not saying, like, we're brilliant or anything, or the show's polished and it's great, but just that we're still going after, like, 80 episodes is pretty cool. So, yeah. And we're still really enjoying it, and we're just glad to be here putting episodes out and getting great feedback and the audience grows and it's just lovely to see yeah i just think it's just amazing i'm really chuffed that first of all you encouraged me to do this and then we did and second of all that we're still going um yeah nearly uh two years in mm-hmm. um so this week we have a guest writer for the episode so a huge thanks goes to elliot caddy who is the owner of camino digital marketing And that's a company that offer an exceptionally high quality of social media marketing and also web content services. And they work mainly in the travel and tourism industry, but um, they also specialize in creating content for podcasts like us, online publications, websites, articles, blogs, and so much more stuff. As a listener of the show, Elliot has put together the script for today's episode to mimic our usual style, and he has done such a great job. We wish him all the best with his business and we really hope to work with him again in the future. As always, we will have a discussion thread on Facebook for you to share your thoughts and your theories on the case after this airs. So head over to that once you've listened to the episode and let us know what you think. So before we begin, we would like to say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. Yep, thank you so much, guys. We have Ali McDonald. Rosie Chexfield, Wendy Sanders, Rosie Bent, Jezza D, Gina Judd, Alison McCarthy, Robert Clifford, Gemma, Jess Smith, Abby Smith, Catherine Hughes, and also massive thanks to Nafisa Jamil, who edited their pledge. Thank you so much, guys. If you would like to sign up to support the show through Patreon, then we're going to have loads of bonus content coming your way. So you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Do have a look and uh, see all the good stuff we've got going on over there. We also have a competition which is running until the 1st of June, where we're giving away a six month subscription to a true crime magazine. Uh, That's available to anybody wherever you live in the world. So all you need to do to be within a chance of winning that is sign up to become a Patreon supporter of the show by the 1st of June. If you're already a Patreon supporter of the show and you still are by the 1st of June or as at the 1st of June, then you're automatically entered into the competition. It's such a great competition. When you said about the prize, I was just like, that is brilliant. Definitely. Can I win? No. So this week, we are going back to 1995 to explore one of the most infamous triple murder cases in British gangster history. This is a case we have had requested a number of times over the years, so it was a perfect case for Elliot to cover for us. This case has received a ton of publicity over the years. It is the story of how three not-so-innocent men met their gruesome demise after being ambushed by rival gangsters as they sat in their car on an icy cold night. 
The case has been the subject of many books and feature films, such as The Essex Boys and Rise of the Foot Soldier, and it has also sparked much debate over who really pulled the trigger on the trio and why. So I am, of course, talking about the Rettenden murders, which occurred on the 6th of December 1995, when three well-known drug dealers from within the Essex underworld were brutally murdered in a Range Rover down a small farm track on Workhouse Lane. This case has had more films made about it than any other gangs in British history, even the Cray Twins, but as is normally the case in the movie business, the events have been heavily sensationalised and exaggerated for dramatic effect, and not many people out there understand the official, less skewed story of what really happened to those three men. Is this a case that you'd heard of before, Mark, that you knew much about? Yeah, I knew it really well, and I I think I, I might have said to... I sent an email to our patrons uh, about a week ago and said that um, Elliot was going to be cov- like coming up with the script for us for a future episode. And I kind of gave a few hints as to what it was. And I said that it had been an episode that I'd always wanted to feature, uh, a case that I'd always wanted to cover. And I'd just forgotten about it, really. It had kind of gone to the back of my mind. So um, it's a really interesting case. And I remember it happening. So I would have been, you know, like 10 or 12. And I remember that Leah Betts was... Uh, you know, is kind of almost like uh, features in the background mm. to this case because um, she was essentially a victim of these guys because they were drug dealers and uh, the drugs that she took resulted in her dying. And, you know, that was a massive story when I was a kid and it stayed with me. And it's, you know, the one reason I've never taken ecstasy because uh, it's a really fucking dangerous and it was drummed into us at school that, you know, it was a very bad drug. And unfortunately, you know, she passed away and yeah, it was a horrible death. It's really interesting, actually, and we will touch on her story and a bit more about her because I'm the same as you and all of our like Just Say No campaigns and everything that we did at school, she was always mentioned. Um, so, yeah. yeah, same. But we're going to talk about her and perhaps might change your mind on a few things, potentially. Um, and I know the, the case obviously isn't about Leah Betts. It's, it's about these guys and, you know, the criminal activities they were involved in and murder and murders. And, but I just thought that's like a really interesting sort of, um, branch to this case. And that's probably what I know most about. Yeah. And I think as with any case, um, there's not just those one person or these three men. The, the case will have like implications far reaching anyway. So, there's always going to be other people who are touched by the, what happens in the episode. Yeah. So Rettenden is a small rural village and civil parish in Essex. It is located about eight miles southeast of the city of Chelmsford. And at around 8am on the cold and snowy morning of December the 7th, 1995, a farmer named Peter Theobald and his friend Ken Jiggins turned their car into Workhouse Lane towards one of Peter's fields to feed his pheasants. Peter owned a shooting range and his bouquet of over 800 pheasants needed to be fed twice a day. As Peter and Ken pulled up to the entrance to the field, they came across a metallic blue Range Rover blocking the gate. The engine was off and there were no signs of movement coming from within. However, when Peter and Ken approached the vehicle, they realised that there were three men slumped inside. Peter and Ken would later tell reporters that they initially thought the men inside the vehicle looked so peaceful that they must have been asleep. It was only when Ken tried to wake them by tapping on the window that the reality of the situation dawned on them both. Describing the scene to reporters later, Ken said, It looked for all the world as if they were asleep. It was only when we looked more closely that we realised they had been shot. The three men in the Range Rover were dead. 
At some point during the previous night, they had each been shot in the head at close range with what was believed to be a pump-action shotgun. Police were quickly able to identify the three murder victims, who were all well-known to be career criminals, major drug dealers and members of the notorious Essex Boys firm. 26-year-old Craig Rolfe was the driver of the vehicle. Detectives theorised that Rolfe had died first and had probably been killed quickly. So quickly, in fact, that when his body was discovered, he still had both of his hands on the wheel and his foot still planted firmly on the brake. 38-year-old gang boss Tony Tucker was slumped in the passenger seat next to Rolf, and it is believed that he would have been killed almost as quickly as Rolf, merely a few seconds later. And 37-year-old Pat Tate lay dead in the back seat. He had been shot a total of four times, twice in the face and head, but he also had two gunshot wounds to his abdomen. Do you know what? That's, um, you know, if you're shot with a pump-action shotgun, shot in the face with that, that I mean, that will literally blow your head mm-hmm. off, basically. That's just a gruesome scene, isn't it? So gruesome. And you can actually see photos taken from the outside and you can see into the car and you can see these men. I think I've seen some of those. And I don't think the men are overly clear, but the blood splatter is massively clear. Um, I'm sure I saw them a few years ago. And yeah, they are you know, every bit as disturbing as Elliot's painted for us there. Yeah, I was quite shocked because I expected, when I clicked on the image, I expected it to be a picture of the car. And then it took me like half a second before I realised there were people in the car. And then I saw, you you kind of get taken aback a bit, don't you? And I was like, oh, that's like, that's actually the people. You don't expect to see that on the internet, really? No, not like at all. Like from a Google search, you don't? No, and some of the pictures, it's been um, like pixelated a little. So that's, for me, that's a little bit better. I think that's a bit more respectful. Yeah. But to be able to quite easily find those photos is quite shocking. So according to the police, none of the victims were wearing seatbelts and there were no signs of a struggle. Although the victims, except perhaps for Rolf, may well have briefly realised what was happening to them before they were slaughtered. And at this point, detectives believed that the men probably knew their killer or killers and were probably not driven at gunpoint down the icy lane to die. The killer did not collect the eight spent cartridges before he left the scene, possibly because it was a dark winter's night and it would have taken too long. Detectives determined that he had fired off three shots quickly, killing Rolf first and then Tucker. It is possible that Rolf and Tucker would have known almost nothing until it was too late. Tate might have reacted in some way and the first shot he received was likely the one through his abdomen. And if this is true, Tate would have seen his friends getting murdered, he would have seen the face or faces of his killers and he would have been alive to see the headshot that would end his life. The gunman reloaded twice during the whole attack. Each man was shot twice in the head, even though they were probably already dead from the first shot. And this indicates strongly that it was not a random slaying. This was vengeance. Can you imagine being sat in that car and having some kind of conscious understanding of what is happening and what's about to happen to you? That awful feeling of inevitability that your life is going to come to end in an end in such a brutal way. Yeah, like at least for the driver and the guy in the passenger seat, you might not have known it was happening. You might not have realised for that guy in yeah, the back. They wouldn't have known. Oh, and he's shot in the stomach as well. So that's clearly to incapacitate him so he's not going to run or anything. Horrific. Almost as soon as the killings became public news, numerous theories emerged from within the police, the media, the victims' families and other members of the Essex underworld surrounding exactly how they came to be shot a total of eight times in a rural Essex village. 
Some detectives working the case theorised that the killer had been in the Range Rover and arrived at Workhouse Lane with his victims, then exited the vehicle under the false pretense of opening the gate. Then he may have retrieved a stashed weapon and turned it on the three men. Others believed that the killer had not been in the Range Rover but knew they were coming and lay in wait, and when the men stopped the car to open the gate, the killer stepped out of the shadows and opened fire. And this kind of reminded me of, um, do you remember our Patreon episode back around Christmas time? with the guy where he was asked to deliver some food, but it was a false delivery. And then when he turned around to drive back out to the farmhouse, the gate was shut and he'd got out of his car to then open the gate. I don't remember this. I'm not sure if I just recorded it separate at Christmas time or whether we recorded it together. I can't remember for definite. But But I would have still edited it. Yeah, so basically um, he'd driven down to go and deliver food that he'd got to the farmhouse and they were like, we didn't make that order. And it was a false order that he'd been lured there. He then went to drive out of the lane and the gate had been locked. And it was at that point when he got out of his car to go get the gate that he was killed. Why did they do that? It does ring a bell. Why did they kill him? Still a mystery. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that was such a harrowing case, but it happened. That's horrible. He was found on Christmas Eve. So it was a, a little Christmas link. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this kind of had a bit of a feeling of that to me, especially the fact that it was such a rural farm lane. Yeah, my first thoughts on it were that, I mean, I I didn't know an awful lot about it, but, you know, with what you were saying then that, yeah, maybe it was a fourth passenger that had got out and then killed the the other three, that kind of would have made the most sense to me. Yeah. So there were also those who favoured a more organised theory, so that the gunman was indeed waiting, but the man who ordered the murders had hired a professional hitman and had arrived with the others in the back seat as a trusted colleague or friend, and then left the car. And so as all these theories made the rounds in Essex and further afield, the police and the media soon made another significant connection, which only added further fuel to the already fierce media interest in the case, and this is what you mentioned earlier the accidental death of Leah Betts. So Leah Betts was a schoolgirl from Latchingdon in Essex and when she died, she received a ton of media attention. Some of you may even remember those distressing images that the media printed of Leah as she lay slowly dying in a coma, slack-shored and covered with tubes. It was really upsetting stuff. And as you said, Mark, for most of us in the UK, she has been painted as the reason why you don't do drugs. When you go to school and you're told like, you know, the teachers teach you about stuff. She's that kind of person, isn't she? Yeah, she was almost like the poster girl of, um, like you say, of, you know, why why not to do drugs. Yeah. And I remember at school, someone came and did a talk about her and explained how she died. And I mean, we may go into this in the script, but um, I don't, I, f- I feel like she didn't actually die from toxicity of MDMA or ecstasy or anything like that. She had drunk too much water um, to counteract the dehydration that can be caused by taking that those drugs. And she'd drunk too much water and she died as a result of that. Low sodium levels in her blood and uh, kind of boiled from the inside out is what I was told. Yeah, that's exactly it. So for any of our listeners who do not know, just three weeks before the Rettenden hit, Leah was celebrating her 18th birthday at her home with some friends and she took a single ecstasy tablet. Four hours later, she collapsed into a coma from which she was unable to recover from. And five days later, she was declared clinically dead and her life support machine was sadly switched off. So one part of Leah's case that 
potentially people don't know about is exactly what you were talking about there, Mark. She didn't actually die from taking ecstasy. So the medical inquest determined that her death was not directly due to her having taken the drug, but rather the result of her drinking seven pints of water in just 90 minutes. So to put that into context, the recommended daily intake of water for the average adult female is 1.6 litres. So that's the equivalent of just under three pints. And so this means that after taking ecstasy at the party, Leah then drank over two days worth of water in just an hour and a half. The ecstasy in her body would have reduced her ability to urinate. And so this resulted in water intoxication, which led to serious swelling and eventually permanent brain damage. And at the conclusion of the inquest, it was stated by the lead toxicologist that if Leah had taken the drug alone, she might well have survived. Um, which I, until this case and this script, I did not know that. I was told at school, a bit like, you know, the film Mean Girls, where he's like, everything ends with you will die. It was very much, if you take drugs, you will die because of this. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think I only found out a few years ago. And I do feel that they, they almost used her and her story and, you know, left bits of that story out to create a narrative that fitted the purpose of, uh, you know, the anti-drugs message they wanted to yeah. convey. Because if they'd gone into schools, if these organisations had gone into schools, and I think even her parents went into schools and did talks, if they'd done that and said, actually, she died from drinking too much water, then it might not have, the message might not have landed as well as it actually did. But I do feel we were kind of misled a little bit. I think so too, because I think at the same time, it would still be good to know that if you know someone who's just taken drugs and they're saying, I'm really thirsty and they start downing loads of water, that potentially that could be the dangerous thing for them to do. It'd be quite good to know that, I think. Yeah. And also, I think, um, you know, drugs are still bad and they're still really dangerous, but you know, don't insult kids' intelligence, perhaps. I don't know. I, it's a difficult situation. But I remember when I heard the the truth or the reality of, of actually what happened to her, I did kind of think, actually, we were misled as kids with the message that, that we were given. Yeah. And the outcome of the inquest created a media frenzy. And like you said, Leah Betts became Britain's poster child for countless television and print campaigns that were raising awareness of the dangers of taking illegal drugs. Behind the scenes, police quickly got to work assigning around 35 officers and huge resources to track the ecstasy tablet back to the dealer and then ultimately the main suppliers. More than £300,000 was spent on the investigation, but the only people charged were four of her friends who had been present at the house, two of whom accepted police cautions and the other two were prosecuted. Of these, one received a conditional discharge, whilst the other was acquitted after a retrial. Detectives also followed a lead that the ecstasy tablet that killed Leah was supplied by a man named Mark Murray, who was a local drug dealer who operated in and around the nightclubs whose door security was provided by none other than Tony Tucker. Murray was questioned by police but fled to Spain shortly after, where he remains to this day and no charges have ever been brought against him. Nevertheless, several of Leah's friends have since come forward and named Mark Murray as the dealer who sold them the drugs, which would eventually make their way to Leah. And this revelation makes it almost certain that Tony Tucker and the Essex Boys firm were the main ecstasy suppliers in Essex at the time. 
Now, under even more intense media scrutiny, the police continue to dig deeply into the lives of the retined and murder victims. They soon found out that Tate, Tucker and Rolf had never been convicted of drug offences, but Essex Police Intelligence revealed that they were well known on the criminal circuit as quite high-up dealers. As the investigation continued, more disturbing details about the men began to come to light. Tony Tucker was the head of the firm, well known around Essex as a man not to be messed with. He was a personal bodyguard to ex-WBC super middleweight champion Nigel Benn and ran a lucrative security agency for several nightclubs around Essex and East London and made about £1,500 a week. Like the others, he had a fine lifestyle living in a £250,000 home and driving around in fancy cars. Tucker worked closely with a man named Michael Steele, a drug smuggler who would bring drugs in from abroad and distribute them through the local clubs under the menace of Tucker and his associates. Craig Rolfe was Tucker's most trusted gopher, a lower-level member of the firm tasked with running errands on behalf of his boss and driving higher-ranking gang members around. He was described as having a huge chip on his shoulder and a serious cocaine problem. When he died, he left behind a six-year-old daughter. Pat Tate was an 18-stone bodybuilder and a man of extreme violence. The room darkened as he entered it, one associate later remarked, which I thought was such a thing that you would say, Mark, very poetic. It is actually, yeah. And the description of the man was terrifyingly fitting. Tate was dangerous, he was a sociopathic bully who physically demolished anyone who crossed his extreme and unpredictable temper. Tate, who had a two-year-old son, had been out of prison for no more than six weeks when he died. He had a much more serious criminal background than the others, and his rap sheet included several convictions for violent offences and armed robbery. He had once famously escaped from the courthouse at Billericay after beating up the court guards who were supervising him, then making off on a motorcycle driven by an accomplice. He slipped the country and headed for Spain, but he later made the mistake of visiting Gibraltar, where he was captured by local police and extradited back to England. Tate was despised by the villains in Essex, so much so that just the year before, a would-be assassin had attempted to kill him by shooting at him through his bathroom window while he relaxed in the bath. Tate was shot in the arm and hospitalised, and during his stay at the hospital, care staff discovered a handgun and a stash of hard drugs under his pillow. Police were alerted and Tate was given time in prison. So unhinged was Pat Tate that only days before he died, he had phoned up the London Pizza Company in Basildon and told the 21-year-old manager, Roger Ryle, that he wanted a specially made pizza with four different toppings on each quarter. Ryle was busy and he quickly became frustrated at the caller's attitude, so he hung up. Tate showed up there within minutes. In a violent, drug fueled rage, he picked up the till and smashed it against a wall, and then he repeatedly punched Ryle before smashing his head into a sink. I mean, what the hell? You want a pizza that's ridiculous, and then you go smash up the whole place? I mean, that is, you know, there's there's like violence, and there's just unhinged, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Ryle, like many others crossed by Tate and his associates, was also too scared to press charges. I'm not surprised after what happened to him, though. Ryle took a savage beating and was severely injured, but it's apparently important to understand that there is no evidence anywhere to suggest that a pizza cutter was used at any point during the attack. Um, So this is one of the many discrepancies between the movie and the real-life events. 
Um, they kind of just hammed it up a bit. But to be honest, it was bad enough even without thinking there was a pizza cutter involved. It was. And it's a bit like what I've done in sort of historic episodes of our show where I've kind of didn't have the full facts. So I've just fucking made it up, haven't I? <laughs> And just embellished and just kind of made it more dramatic than it is. I think... And every time I get told off. I think sometimes you do it okay and it fits in with the story and actually it, it adds to the story because you're telling maybe potentially what someone's thinking about or the thoughts that are going through their mind. I don't mind that. When you just come out with something that's not true... It was more like when I said, like, <laughs> Tracy loved cock and that she was foaming at the mouth and <laughs> none of which i need to be a fan it was po- but... it was i think it's just pa- basic like that entire episode <laughs> yeah tracy loved cock is gonna stick with us for years to come i still get people saying that to me on social media now so bernard o'mahoney i think that's how you say it a club bouncer who worked closely with all three men later told the press All three were cowards who beat women. They would only attack people in numbers or they would select weak, straight, vulnerable victims. They demanded loyalty but mastered in deceit. We were all products of the world that we inhabited. So all three men were widely despised among the Essex underworld, but ultimately it would be Tate's unchecked violence that would bring about the trio's downfall. Police were able to dig up a lot of information about the three victims and their roles in Essex Gangland, but virtually nothing to indicate who may have murdered them or why. Any leads they followed up on were met by dead ends and walls of silence. Nobody dared to speak out against the firm. Nobody was that stupid. And in the absence of any credible witnesses, DNA evidence or legitimate clues of any kind, the police were turning up blanks. The investigation was going nowhere and was on the verge of going completely cold. When six months later, their luck changed. In early 1996, Darren Nichols, a small-time local criminal, was arrested and charged with conspiracy to import cannabis. He was facing a lengthy... He was facing a lengthy... I can't say lengthy. Fucking hell, Do I say lengthy or lengthy? Lengthy. Lengthy. See if I can speak English. You didn't know it was my first language. He was facing a lengthy prison sentence and was not happy to go down. Instead, he claimed to know exactly what had happened in Rettenden and often to tell the police his version of what had happened on that night in exchange for leniency. Nichols had been working as a driver and general handyman for Michael Steele, the drug smuggler who had previously supplied imported drugs to Tony Tucker and the firm. Through Darren Nichols' testimony, it was revealed that Steele had fallen out with Tate and Tucker over a shipment of cannabis that turned out to be such low quality that it was impossible to sell. This had infuriated Tate, who called Steele and threatened to make him beg on his knees for mercy before he killed him. Knowing full well what Tate was capable of, Steele decided it was better if he were the one to strike first. And so on the night of December the 6th, Steele put a plan into motion. He enlisted the help of a friend named Jack Holmes to assist him. Darren Nichols then drove Steele and Holmes to Wettenden. Nichols apparently had no idea what was about to take place, believing instead that they were going on a reconnaissance mission involving an incoming drug shipment. At around the same time, Tucker, Tate and Rolf were arriving at the Pheasant Field Arm Workhouse Lane, and they believed they were going to meet Michael Steele, who would be showing the Essex boys where a light aircraft filled with cocaine was going to land. Steele was allegedly offering the men a share of the shipment to make up for the botched cannabis deal. And it is believed that Tucker, Tate and Rolf were intent on robbing the entire cargo to keep it for themselves. Given their recent feud with Steele, they may have even been planning to kill him afterwards too. However, Tucker, Tate and Rolf would soon discover that their entire mission was merely a baited hook. 
Steele and Humes reportedly exited Nichols' vehicle a short distance from Workhouse Lane and were gone for a short length of time. It was only when the two men returned that Nichols realised what had happened. Humes was apparently wearing bloodstained white surgical gloves and overalls, and the court also heard that the guns were dismantled, the killers were amused that Steele's shotgun had fallen apart. Steele had also allegedly told Nichols that he felt like an angel of death after the murders, and said he felt like he had done everyone a favour. Detectives had nothing to go on except for this one testimony by Darren Nichols. There were no other witnesses, no DNA evidence, no fingerprints, nothing. Nothing except the desperate ramblings of a known criminal. Nevertheless, under immense scrutiny from the public and the media, detectives felt that they had enough to charge Steele and Holmes with the killings. It would take more than two years of legal proceedings before a verdict could be reached. In the end, based solely on the testimony of Darren Nichols, Holmes and Steele were convicted of murder. Throughout the entire investigation, trial and sentencing, Steele and Holmes vocally maintained that they were innocent men. However, their pleas fell on deaf ears before the jury and the two men were labelled as executioners as they were found guilty of blasting the three drug dealers to death in their Range Rover following the trial at the Old Bailey. Holmes, aged 36 and Steele, aged 55, received three life sentences with a minimum of 15 years. Addressing the two men, Mr Justice Hidden said... There is little that can be said usefully to either of you at this stage. You two men were responsible, in my view, for taking away their lives in a violent and summary way. You lured them to a quiet farm track and summarily executed them. As they were led away, Michael Steele and Jack Holmes continued to proclaim that they were not responsible. I can't, I know there's there's obviously a lot more to come, but I just can't believe on the testimony of Darren Nichols that... you know, one guy and like you say, the ramblings of a known criminal and these two guys are sentenced to prison for the the three murders. I'm like, what? I couldn't get over it as well. I'm kind of like, there must, like, how can you bring that to trial just with one person's evidence? And I think it'll be interesting because I I really don't know the ins and outs of this case. So I think it's going to be interesting as you go on now because I've got my own theory and I don't know whether this will come up or not. It's so interesting, isn't it? It's it's crazy. Mm. And like you said, this should kind of be the end of the case, but it's not. There is so much more to discuss. Because ever since Holmes and Steele were convicted of the murders back in 1997, countless people have insisted that the two men are really innocent and that the real killers remain at large. And so much doubt has been cast over Darren Nichols' credibility as the only witness in the case. And their scepticism is well-founded. I completely agree. What Mr Justice Hidden did not know prior to his sentencing of Holmes and Steele, and neither did the jury or the defence, was that some months before the trial had even begun, Nichols had agreed to a commercial arrangement with the journalist Tony Thompson, who later would become a best-selling true crime writer. It is understood that they agreed on a contract to collaborate on a book which covered in detail numerous elements of the Range Rover murders, and this arrangement ultimately made Nichols several thousand pounds. So is it possible that the agreement compromised Nichols' crucial evidence? Could Nichols have embellished the testimony to create a more exciting tale? And if the jury had known of such a deal, would they have so easily reached a unanimous guilty verdict against Holmes and Steele? In fact, would the expensive and high-profile trial have been allowed to take place at all? It just seems very unlikely. Nevertheless, despite multiple appeals by both men, Holmes and Steele's convictions have been upheld, and many view this as a tragic miscarriage of justice. 
And so the question still remains, if Holmes and Steele did not carry out the murders, then who did? And I really like that this is kind of going to go into a few more sort of possible scenarios. I really like that Elliot's done that for us because this, this is, is very so us. <laughs> he's really done a great job. He said he's listened to us a lot and he really likes the show and he would write it in that the sort of style that we would usually present. He totally has. He really has, hasn't he? Yeah. So in 1996, Marie Tate, Pat Tate's mother, told the Guardian newspaper that she believes her son was killed by the friends of a man named Kevin Whitaker, who was just 28 years old when he died of an apparent drug overdose in November 1994. He was a drug courier and an associate of Craig Rolfe. Tate's mother believes that Whitaker was murdered by Rolfe and Tucker over drug debts. And she claims that her son told her about it when she visited him in hospital after the attempt was made on his life. Whitaker, whose parents were horrified to discover his links with drugs, disappeared from their home on November the 17th, 1994. He had dropped off his six-month-old son with them. Then he had gone out when Rolf called him. And almost 30 hours later, police arrived on the Basildon doorstep of Bert and Joan Whitaker to tell them that their son had been found dumped by the roadside. There was no doubt at all that Whitaker had died from a drug overdose. Police, seeing needle marks on his right arm, just assumed that he was an addict and they believed his death might be suicide or that he might have overdosed accidentally and other drug users may have moved his body in fear that the police might prosecute them for drug offences. And during an inquest into Whitaker's death, Rolf himself was called to give evidence but initially denied even knowing Whitaker. Rolf would later admit that he had called Whitaker after police confronted him with itemised phone bills. So Mrs Tate claims that, according to her son's story, Tucker and Rolf had injected Whitaker in the groin with a paralysing drug and then ketamine. The victim was powerless but conscious. He was then injected with lignocaine, which killed him, and then he was dumped on the side of the road. And Mrs Tate believes that Whitaker's friends avenged his death and that her son was the innocent party in the wrong place at the wrong time. Although police now also believe that Rolf and Tucker did murder Whitaker, they have made it clear that they do not believe that it had anything to do with the events at Workhouse Lane. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, because even if they were responsible for Whitaker's murder, does that mean their murder of him was avenged by Whitaker's friends? No, it doesn't. It, it might be. It might be that it's all linked. It might not be. I think it's a really interesting potential... Because if your friend's murdered, especially in that way, you're going to want justice. And in that world, in the underworld, that criminal underworld, that is quite common uh, for people to seek their own brand of justice. Yeah, absolutely. So the second theory then is that Tucker, Tate and Rolf had encroached onto the turf of a rival gangster and were becoming a nuisance. By all accounts, the three men were out of control. They had bullied, robbed and terrorised the weak and demolished anyone who got in their way. Many Essex villains knew that it was only a matter of time before one or even all three of them would pay the price. It was well known in the Essex underworld that Pat Tate had fallen afoul of Billy and Eddie Blundell, allegedly two of the most notorious and powerful villains in Essex, and often cited as being more dangerous than the Cray twins. Not long before the murders, Billy and Eddie Blundell had warned that the Essex boys would end up dead. Many have since pondered the question, could the brothers have ordered or even perpetrated the murders to get Tucker, Tate and Rolf out of the way for good? This theory was bounced around during the police investigation and there were a number of suspects from within the Blundell brothers' firm, but ultimately there was little to no evidence to back it up and nothing came of it. 
My thinking on that, though, is that if that is the case, you're probably not going to find any evidence. No, it's credible, though. I mean, of course, that could have happened that they were encroaching on another drug gang's turf, trying to be top dog in in the county of Essex and, you know, a more established firm moved in and took them out. And maybe that happens all the time and it's just not covered as much as this case was covered. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, for me, this has a lot of credibility because... Whoever did this, first of all, had a pump-action shotgun, so it's not just going to be anybody. And it's very methodical, like two gunshots to the head, you know, one that kills, one that's confirming, and it's an execution, shooting the guy in the back in the gut and then the head. Like, it feels like somebody who knows what they're doing. So the third and final theory takes us full circle back to Leah Betts, as many believe suggestions in the media that the slayings were an act of revenge for her death. Leah was an extremely popular and well-loved teenager, and many of her inner circle publicly expressed their anger and a desire for justice in the aftermath of her passing. The Betts family were already grieving for Leah's mother, Dorothy May Betts, who had died suddenly of a heart attack in 1992 at the age of 45. In a press conference in November 1995, Leah's father, Paul Betts, said, I've got anger, hate, and I've got love. I've got love for my daughter. I've got anger for the people with drugs, and I hate this bastard that supplied them. So we're not suggesting in any way that Mr. Betts was the gunman, and the police have never suggested that this was ever a line of inquiry into this theory. But there has still been significant media speculation over the last 20 years that the brutal hit may have been carried out by those close to Leah, either through a contractor or by their own doing, to avenge the much-loved Leah, a tragic victim of the Essex boys' relentless greed. So what are your thoughts and what was your theory? Well, I that was kind of what I thought, but it was it's similar to that. Not necessarily that it was somebody who was close to Leah that arranged for the three men to be killed. But it was almost like, um, I don't know, almost like there's just a weird sense of justice within that criminal underworld where they have their own kind of moral codes. And it might be that one gang had seen, uh, you know, Leah's face plastered all over the media that she died as, as a result of, you know, maybe at the time it was, I don't know, maybe it was being reported it was a bad batch of ecstasy or something. One gang found out that it was a rival gang that had dealt that and they just thought it was their business to go and seek justice for Leah and her family. I, I, I just don't know. That that was my thinking on it. Not that not that anybody that knew Leah necessarily arranged for it, it to happen. It does seem strange that it was so close in time um, and that there were those links that the person that supplied her with the drugs was linked with these guys. So it, it does seem like it... It couldn't really be a coincidence. Yeah, I think there's a there's a high chance the two things are related. However, I kind of think that from what I remember of Leah's story, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, she seemed to just be a normal person, just in a normal standard life. That, yeah, she was taking some drugs on her 18th birthday, but it wasn't partic- she wasn't really involved in any sort of criminal life or world anyway so i wonder would she really have had friends that would know how to do something like this or arrange something like this i'm thinking from if it was me for example i'm celebrating my 18th i don't think anybody i know would be able to then do this in revenge for me no and and it was quite a professional hit yeah. really um so you you've really got to know the right people I just don't know. I, you know, maybe we don't really know enough about Leah. And I know that, you know, I was given a picture 
of you know this kind of middle class girl with normal kind of family background and that actually wasn't I'm not going to go into loads of details and I can't really remember with accuracy exactly what the deal was there but it wasn't quite what we were led to believe in terms of her background either you know she'd done nothing wrong but it wasn't your perfect uh you know family upbringing and I I mentioned about her mum and dad going into schools and doing talks obviously it wasn't her mum because her mum died before Leah died, but it must have been a, a dad and stepmum. And I feel like her parents had got divorced and there was a bit of upheaval. I just don't know. Um, none of that means that she would have known criminals or, or anything. I'm not not saying that at all, but but we probably don't know as much about her background as, as perhaps there is to yeah, it. I don't and, know. And perhaps as well, if if you're going out to certain nightclubs, you might get to know the doorman, for example, and you don't necessarily know that they've got connections to the criminal underworld, for example, or um, the bouncers and stuff might know somebody else. I think they all used to go to a nightclub called Raquel's. That is a classic name. I know, isn't it? How 80s is that? Um, But I'm sure that was like a big nightclub in Essex where it had a major drug problem um, and the doormen and, you know, all of those were really heavily involved in dealing drugs, not just within the club, but within the whole county. Um, So, yeah, maybe if they went to Raquel's, they would have got in with, with the wrong people, her and her friends, who knows? So the only people who know what really took place on Workhouse Lane during that cold winter's night are in the ground, and the truth may never be known. Still, regardless of what anyone believes, Jack Holmes and Michael Steele have paid the price. Michael Steele remains in prison and still maintains his innocence. He has lost three appeals against his sentence, and his actual release date is unclear. Just last month, in March 2020, it was revealed in the media that Jack Holmes has been on day release from prison and is due to be released any day now after serving more than two decades for a triple murder that he still swears he had nothing to do with. Wow, that's interesting that he's like either out now or very imminently will be released. Be interesting to see what happens then. Definitely. So there we go, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode. And please do head over to the Facebook group and let us know your thoughts and theories and um, what you think about the case over on the discussion thread. Yeah, thanks so much to Elliot Caddy of Camino Digital Marketing who wrote this for us. Um, I'm sure you'll agree he's done an absolutely fantastic job. Um, And it was a case, as I said, that we really wanted to cover. So uh, we are so grateful to you, Elliot. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. It's a case that's been potentially you know put forward as potential by a number of our listeners and I am really sorry but so many different people have mentioned it that it's almost impossible to kind of name check everyone who suggested it so I thought rather than accidentally forgetting to mention somebody I just won't mention anybody but thank you everyone who's mentioned the case because it's it is a really interesting one yeah so as Bethan said please let us know your thoughts uh, you can find us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter don't forget to support the show through patreon.com slash seeing red podcast. And we've got, we're going to get a bonus episode out now on the last Friday of every month, exclusive to Patreon supporters. Um, and don't forget to head over to YouTube. So what we're going to do now, now that I've kind of caught up with all the videos, um, season four onwards, we will pop a video up each week, a few days after the episode drops on a Wednesday. So it will probably be out on the Saturday night. Um, so you can see some of the photographs to do with the case some of the links and stuff that we've used to do our research we'll be putting those into the video so you can really um, sort of find out a bit more about the episode and a bit more about 
the case itself. And you can also head over to our YouTube channel right now to uh, hear us have a little chat about all things coronavirus because we thought we'd keep it all separate from the show. But we've got a lot to say on the subject. Of course. Guys, thank you for listening once again and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.